Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZANDMHomes.com. Baxi's Musical Podcast. On more than a few occasions, I've had a few people come up to me and say, Jesus, Baxi, you listen to a lot of weird stuff. And my response to that is usually, dude, you don't know the half of it. Because I haven't even attempted to talk about what I think is possibly the weirdest band in history. Weird, but essential, challenging, and important. A band that has technically been in existence for the last half century. A band that has recorded more than 60 albums, released dozens of videos and short films, has toured the world several times over, and have been among one of the most innovative pioneers in multimedia presentations ever combining incredible visuals with some of the most avant-garde music ever recorded. The name of the band is The Residents, and without question, they are the weirdest, most mysterious band in the history of recorded music. Their music is not for the faint of heart, it's not always easily understood, but their influence is both profound and undeniable. In the same way that Captain Beefheart's classic album Trout Mask Replica both confused and delighted audiences back in 1969, the residents took those ideas even further for their 1974 debut album, Meet the Residents. For those that got it, this is among one of the many essential records by this band, like Duck Stab in 1978, or Fingerprints from 1977, or the commercial album from 1980. On the other hand, there are plenty of people who simply don't get it and probably never will. Known mostly for their eyeball heads and top hats, the residents have been cited by an endless string of artists who sing their praises, many of whom have collaborated with the band but refuse to reveal their identities, possibly because even they don't know. There's also been rumors that the residents may have included people like George Harrison of the Beatles, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo, or Les Claypool from Primus. Nobody knows for sure. Nobody can confirm their individual names. No one knows what they actually look like. Nobody is entirely sure how many people have been in the band. For the most part, they've operated completely anonymously without names, faces, or identities. They never grant interviews in the traditional sense because they are a band of very few words. Only once has a member of the band officially confirmed himself as a co-founder of the residents, the late Harley Fox, who died in 2018 at the age of 73. Despite years of using various assumed names and hiding behind several mysterious identities, four years later, Graphic artist and publisher Aaron Tanner, the creative director for Melodic Virtue Publishing, was given unprecedented access to the residents and their artistic archives. These archives were kept by Homer Flynn, the creative director for the residents. This is a wide-ranging collection that included 50 years of Flynn's artwork and assorted visuals relating to the band. Aaron Tanner, who had worked as the artistic director for bands like Ween and several others, compiled the first of a series of limited-edition coffee table books about the residents entitled A Sight for Sore Eyes, Volume 1, which sold out almost as quickly as it was released. Tanner is about to release Volume 2, with an alleged third volume still in the works. 
It is a stunning collection of graphic art, photographs, and other multimedia that fully captures the mysterious genius of the residents and their prolific career. And the fact that Aaron was able to have this sort of access to the residents and their work is what makes these books so compelling. Do the books answer all the unknown questions about the residents? Like I said, you don't know the half of it. This is my conversation with Aaron Tanner from Melodic Virtue on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Great to have you. I'm 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 kind of excited about this because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I, I think the residents are like one of those bands that don't get enough real attention, enough conversation. But as I was preparing for this, the thing they got really interested in was what Melodic Virtue does. I mean, before we get into into talking about the residents, tell me a little bit about the company and 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 what it's all about. So um, Melodic Virtue used to be. Uh, essentially my my freelance graphic design name you know the the company that i used for that uh did a lot of uh local stuff um but also a lot of music industry work uh most notably uh for ween um i was their long-standing graphic designer like up until you know they they broke up and and that honestly that was sort of the catalyst for creating this publishing endeavor you know i they were one of my biggest clients and all of a sudden I had to start scrounging for work. <laughs> um, you know, I don't have the widest skill set, <laughs> but I can design <laughs> things and I do know a lot about music. So yeah, just decided to give this a shot. Well, I mean, we, we is a, a perfectly good example of a band that's always had just great graphics. I mean, I've got, you know, mollusk and white pepper and this sounds though, when you're doing publishing books, it sounds like, a project that could be 9,000 times more challenging than an album cover or inner sleeve. I mean, am I right about that or, or, or wrong about that? Oh, absolutely. And that's honestly, that's one of the things that sort of inspired me to do this as well. Um, you know, being a, a freelance graphic designer, being a single dad, I don't get paid until the project's done. So I would, I would tend to take on a lot of work you know, and had to knock things out rather quickly, you know, so I could essentially just get paid more. And so it was really nice to switch gears and really just spend a year on one project and, you know, make it the absolute best it can be versus just trying to hurry up and get something out the door so you can get paid. <laughs> you've actually done a number of books, it's really interesting stuff. I mean, you've done books of bands that have been slightly beyond uh, the mainstream, the Pixies, Face to Face, the Butthole Surfers Ministry, for example. Tell me how you've chosen who to publish materials for. Are are you the one deciding who you want to uh, to put the book for, or are, they, or are they coming to you? It's a little bit of both. So with with Face to Face, they were the ones that originally approached me. They were big fans of the Pixies, and you know, having done that that book, um, that book was was done as a freelance job. And again, another thing that helped push me in this direction. But yeah, face-to-face uh, -face approached me then uh, in meeting with, with them and getting to know them, got to know their management. Uh, their management just so happened to be uh, representing the, the butthole surfers at the time, you know, which led me there. Obviously, working on that book, I got to meet Al Jorgensen, you know, and it just... There, there really is no rhyme or reason other than I just select books of, or I select bands that I'm that I'm into, and and those tend to be some of the weirder ones. 
<laughs> I mean, the nice part about it is good work tends to elicit more good work. So one or two great projects and all of a sudden people are starting to say, hey, this guy's really fantastic at what he does. I got to believe that's part of what may, <laughs> may guide this company for, for years to come. Yeah, me too. I, I don't, if this fails, I don't know what I'm going to do next. <laughs> I do want to talk about the residents, though, because I, I find them to be like one of the most fascinating bands ever. For, you know, for some people, it's such an intimidating body of work. But yet, the first time I became aware of them, and I can't even tell you what year this was, I remember seeing like a, like a news story. And it was almost like a, like a publicity stunt to them flying into New York, very much like, like the Beatles. I mean, it may have actually been around, you know, meet the residents. And the, them being touted as like the next big thing in music. But, you know, obviously, you know, so bizarre and so weird that it was never going to be, you know, mainstream. But I didn't actually start jumping into the residence until like 1989 with the, uh, the release of The King and I. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's really the best place to have started with the residence, but how did you get introduced to the residence? Uh, I, I feel like it's with most people my age, and it was, it was through Primus. You know, Primus, uh, Les Claypool especially, you know, was just, he could not say enough nice things about that band, you know, like covering the songs and all that. And I've always been obsessed with eyeballs, even since I was a small child. (laughs) And, uh, you know, to listen to Primus, find out what influenced them, and you're like, oh, holy shit, this is a a band with nothing but eyeballs on their heads, you know, it's... (laughs) It, it was definitely the band for me. I think the thing that, that's so compelling to me is that, I mean, here's a band that's been around for, for 50 years plus, and yet they're so cloaked in mystery. I mean, even Kiss took off their makeup at some point. But, uh, you know, the residents have taken this like a million steps further. We don't really know what they look like. They've never truly identified themselves publicly. I mean, I mean they could be anybody, which to me is, is probably like the exact opposite of why people get into music in the first place, they've been very, very deliberate in how mysterious that image goes. I mean, I don't know if that has been you know, like a compelling part to you, but for me, it's like it's amazing that they've been so anonymous for a half century. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, pre-internet, you know, a lot of it was just left up to your imagination. You know, you you might come across a, a random article or something in a magazine, but but like you were saying earlier, I mean, they they weren't a band that were publicized all that much. And the mystery is a, a huge part of it. And, you know, the, the lore and all the, the stories, whether they're either fabricated or real, you know, it's, it's just all part of it. It's also interesting how, you know, when you listen to the music, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to describe to someone who doesn't, who is not aware of it. At some point, it's, the music can be beautiful and other times it's frightening with a sense of, of menace. Yeah, but like all good art, and you being a you know, a graphic artist, I have to believe that you probably feel this way too. Like all good art, you know, it it inspires people in different ways. The reaction that people get from just the visuals alone would be one thing, but when you hear the music, you realize there's a creativity and a purposeful creativity that doesn't exist. And I'd say like ninety nine percent of other artists, they they stand on their own as far as what they do. The closest I can think ever came to this would be like Captain Beefheart and Trout Mass Replica. I mean, it's it's the closest to that than maybe anybody else that I can name. Oh, definitely. And they are Beefheart fans. When I was going through uh, their archives and things, I, I did find a, a signed uh, promo photo of Beefheart. <laughs> 
That's very cool. Yeah. The idea of you going, and I read a little bit about you going through the uh, the residence archives, and, and, and this has to be, I think this is amazing that, one, you were given access to this stuff, and the two, that so much of it, you know, existed. Obviously, you, you, you can't do anything in this situation without dealing with, you know, Homer Flynn, who is the residence art director, and you know, although he denies being a part of the band, the idea that you got as involved and into the weeds on this to the degree you did is fascinating to me. Tell me how that process played out for you. Um, I mean, it, it was very surreal, you know, obviously, <laughs> but when it came down to it, it, it just felt like a, a job, you know, it, it's, you know, obviously I was loving what I was doing, but you know, I, I was there to do a, a task and that's, that's the way it was. I try not to bug them as much as possible, you know, with questions and, and all that, you know, unless I, you know, struggle to figure out like what era something was from, you know, because I, I was coming across a lot of things that have, you know, never been out in the public before. So there's no frame of reference for me. Well, so my understanding is that, that you and your son got in, in, into these archives. He was scanning stuff. You were sifting through it. How quickly did you realize that this might not be just like a one shot project but there may be several volumes involved here oh i i kind of figured uh just well so like let me back up a little bit um some of the previous books i've done um you know the band will just have a box of artifacts or um you know with like al jorgensen for instance he only had a briefcase you know that had some things in it but whenever i heard there was shelves and shelves and shelves of material i was like oh this is definitely not going to be a, a single book you know it's <laughs> we're, we're probably only going to be able to do you know 13 15 years at a time was there anything that you discovered along the way that surprised you about the residents i mean were there were there some things that that you didn't expect to see Oh, definitely. Um, one thing I, I wasn't aware of was that they uh, did music for Pee Wee's Playhouse. And I, I came across those master tapes. Wow. That was pretty incredible. And, you know, then there's like a few things, you know, I've, I consider myself to be a pretty big fan, but there's even some things that they had done that had flown under my radar, you know that I, you know, obviously had to get really familiar with. So let me ask you this, you know, because of the band and their public image and how they've protected that image for all of these years, how involved were the individual members of the residents with this project? I mean, I assume that you met them, spoke to them. I mean, I know you didn't want to bother them too much, but you had to have some access to them. What was that like? And, and, and was it, I mean, it, you talk about surreal. Just the idea of it sounds, you, you know, like a Salvador Dali painting. They're like the most surreal thing you could ever, you know, stumble upon. Tell me uh, what that was like. Yeah, so uh, they were they were mostly hands off. Uh, mm -hmm. It was they really respected what I was doing and everything, and just sort of like let me do my own thing. But then, you know, uh, once I completed the book before I I sent it off to the manufacturer as a courtesy, I gave it to them, and I was like you know, please let me know if there's anything in here that's too revealing or, you know, that you think, you know, may have put you in a bad light or, you know, anything like that. And then they, they had just a couple minor changes and I, you know, respectfully did those or changed that stuff. But other than that, they just uh, basically just watched me. 
with their big giant eyes, right? Uh, no, they, they were unmasked. <laughs> they but, were. But the eyeballs were present. So the first book deals primarily with the, you know, the, the, the first 10 years of their career, all analog type of stuff. Now, as you move further along in their career, digital technology now becomes more available and the structures of what they do are, are different. But in those early years in the, in the, in the first book, is the material you found significantly different than what you found for say the, the, the second book? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, their their process for everything, you know, from their art to their music, you know, evolved over time, you know, as they got more experience or just like developed new interests. And uh, you don't you don't see it as much in the first book. You know, you see the really, really early years before they ever even called the residents. That stuff was exceptionally rough. And then you can see they they really got a lot more refined, you know, as they created Meet the Residents and then moving forward, even like, you know, the commercial album and all that. Um, but but with the second book, it's it's really interesting because they're they're starting off or it starts off still in that analog era and then very quickly gets into digital and then, you know, um ends just shortly after that that multimedia era. One of the more controversial parts of their career the uh, the third reich and roll album the visuals involved in that shocked some people i mean i think any fan would see that purely as as satire but how did they reconcile that i mean you're talking about swastikas and images of of adolf hitler but you know i think what they were trying to do artistically was not to support nazism in, in any no. way but, I mean, certainly from an artistic standpoint, it was a very bold statement for them to do at that time. How, do they, how did they wind up reconciling that amongst themselves, putting that out there? I, well, I, I never asked, but growing up, listening to a lot of punk music, uh, any time, you know, they, they would reference the government, you know, uh, a lot of times it was referred to, you know, they're acting like Nazis. or So I, I just sort of grew up, for me personally, just hearing that, you know, sort of like any sort of like anti-establishment, you know, uh, the the current administration's acting like like Hitler or whatever, right? And and that's sort of their spin on it is Dick Clark is like Hitler, you know, they're not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, pop music which they they do enjoy, um, you know, is is like Nazism, you know, that was their little their little jab it was never intended to support the <laughs> support any of that nonsense well it, you know it's funny to me because you know it, i think you know, obviously it's meant to be satirical it, it's funny how sure. how often people just don't get the satire i mean i'm thinking like for example you know like the dead kennedys maybe one of the most politically satirical bands of all time how seriously some people took you know what they were saying no one was going to kill the landlord nobody was going to you know, there were no holidays in Cambodia. I mean, there were none of, the, of those things. And and even, you know, I don't know how many Nazi punks actually fucked off, but it was just, to me, the, you know, satire can be so easily lost on the people who are either closed-minded or just have blinders on about, you know, taking things so damn literally. Right. And I mean, you know, growing up in the underground music community, you know, you, you have a better sense of that, you know, but if you're just some regular old office guy or whatever I, I i could see like 
you know, maybe the translation's lost somewhere. You mentioned a couple of names of, of you know, people who have been greatly influenced by the residents. You know, Les Claypool, obviously one of them. But, you know, in the first book, you got quotes from a pretty wide array of people. Everybody from, from Paul Rubens to Weird Al, Andy Partridge, Danny Elfman, you know, Penn Jillette. The second volume, you've got, uh, you know, people also contributing to you know, Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casale from Devo and Moby and Stan Ridgway and, and, and David J from Bauhaus. How did you cast that net and how willing were people to contribute to this? Uh, extremely willing. Um, but it's, you know, for this, it's actually been the most, one of the most challenging things with the residence book, um, you know, with some of the past books I've done, some of these, these bands that were influenced by like ministry or butthole surfers, they really wear that, uh, influence on their sleeve not so much with the residents you know there's there's not a lot of bands that just sound like them <laughs> so uh, a lot of it was just guesswork and even even still i'm i'm really surprised like uh recently shane from napalm death reached out you know he's a he's a huge fan and that's honestly not one i would have guessed right he, he will be in a future volume now so when you're putting these books together and you're incorporating all of these, uh, all of these images and all of the, all of this material, are you going chronologically within the book themselves or you're just going through like certain periods of their career? You terms of, in terms of like image gathering or, yeah. or just like in the way the books are built? Well, I'm, I'm, the, the reason I'm asking is because of the enormity of material that exists, what, was it presented to you in a, chronological fashion or was it you know you had to kind of sort through all this stuff to figure out well where does this stand in a 50 year long career it, it was not organized whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> i mean there was there were several just huge cardboard boxes you know the the types of boxes you would use for like moving or something that would just have like single sheets of paper in them and, you know, it like some were from the 70s, some were from the 90s, some were recent. And I would literally just have to go through every single sheet, you know, make sure it, it should be scanned this time around. And it became pretty evident to me early on that we're not going to be able to get everything in that, that first session that we had. And so my son and I spent 10 days out there uh, scanning everything for the first book. The, the very last day, we had a little extra time, so we went ahead and started scanning stuff for the second. But I was, I was, I was really surprised, um, even having gone through all that stuff once before, whenever I went back, I didn't realize the sheer volume of stuff that was going to be in the, the second one. If anything, I thought it was going to be a little lighter than the first, but it, it turned out to be the opposite. So you're dealing with the cryptic corporation on this and, uh, and, and obviously Homer Flynn is the artistic director of the residents, but the, the mystery of how much involved he is in this band. I know that he has denied multiple times being a member of the band. Mm -hmm. Do we have any indication about how many people have at any point been in the residence? Because I mean, there's, there's, there's rumors all over the place. Every, you know, everyone from, George Harrison may have at one point been a member of the residents. You know, Les Claypool, we mentioned him a, a, a couple of times. You know, he's the kind, of kind of, the kind of guy you can see maybe taking a stab at being a resident. But do we have any idea how, how many people have been involved? 
Uh, I don't. <laughs> um, but I do know they they are a, a hugely collaborative band. You know, they're they're always you know willing to work with with people outside, and some sometimes those people make themselves known. Sometimes they don't, and that that even furthers the mystery. So each one of these books that you have done uh, with Melodic Virtue have all been limited edition collector's pieces and i know that if you went on you know on the website you know a lot of these books are are, are no longer available or, or sold out i assume because of the quality of what you've done the the weight of what of what these books is that the cost of mass producing these books has to be somewhat prohibitive but has there ever been any discussion about possible reissues on these books or is it like you know a certain number are published and, and then that's it um you're right. They are insanely expensive to produce. Uh, but the the other side of that, too, is um, they're expensive to store. Um, you know, whenever I, well, like this last residence book, for instance, I mean, it, it's like uh, like 10 pallets, you know, so this isn't something I can just like stick in my garage or, <laughs> you know, anything. I have to I have to rent climate controlled space to to house all these things. So. Part of me not reissuing is is due to that. Uh, just the, you know, the the space that we rent is less than a thousand square feet, wow. and we just just don't have the space to, you know, house all these books. I did reissue the the Butthole Surfers book as a paperback, and uh, we had a little more space at the time, <laughs> but that was about the only reason. So when Al Jorgensen of Ministry comes to you with a with a, a briefcase full of material, you gotta feel somewhat relieved that it's not it's not a ten day project to sort through everything he's got. And I assume, I mean, I, tell me if I'm wrong, he didn't want you saying very much about that first album. <laughs> he's warmed up to it. Good, because it's actually a much better album than I think he he believed at the time. Poppy as it may be, sure. it's actually a pretty good record. Well, and he he made that record to impress a girl who happened to be into a lot of like, you know, like British electronic music and you know, and that's where the the accent came from and yeah. all that. <laughs> so, having all of this material uh, for for this book and, and I and I got to believe, you know, releasing the second residence book uh, is probably a big weight off your shoulders, but do you have any idea who you might want to I mean, is there like a a wish list of other bands that you would love to tackle? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in the, in the process of doing these books, I've, you know, met some people and we've, we've already started talking, but there's a, there's no signed agreements at this point, so I can't spill any beans, but I, I will say a few of them are in uh, residence volume two. So, so use your imagination and, you know, see if you can pick the, who's going to win or whatever. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, pick names, but Devo's retiring. I'm just saying, I'm not, I don't know if that's that's out there, but that just seems like a pretty obvious choice. But you know, you talk about you know being a, a music fan with the art that you know so many bands require in their presentation. I mean, these are weird times for for graphic artists when it comes to to music. It doesn't seem to be like the emphasis on the like the ephemera or the or the uh, or the physical product of records as a graphic artist this has to be somewhat challenging times simply because there aren't there isn't the real emphasis on artwork the way it used to be right and a, a lot of that i feel like has to just come down to money uh, you know there's there's a lot of 
young designers out there that are willing to do things for free. And that's obviously pretty appealing to a band who, you know, they already have several people with hands in their pockets, you know, managers and attorneys and everybody else, you know, so the quality of the work tends to not be there. I remember when I was younger, uh, you know, going into record stores and making decisions on what I wanted to buy purely based sometimes on the cover art. You know, if there was something that just looked so damn cool or compelling, you know, I at least wanted to you know, take the risk of buying it. I mean, that was the whole thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like all of like Storm Thurgeson's work or, you know. Yeah. So there's so many fantastic designers that were working in music. When you talk about uh, you, you being a, a fan of particularly of, uh, of punk rock and, and stuff that may be out of mainstream, what kind of stuff that were you really inspired by, uh, you know, getting into, into the graphic design area? Uh, it, it was the residents, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, I, I got into them when I was like 15, 16 years old. And, you know, they're such a strong visual band. The visuals are just equally as important as the music. And uh, just studying all that album art, imagining how they made it, how they came up with it, hugely inspiring. Yeah, Aaron, it's, 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 I'm so glad that, the, that these books are out there, and, and, I'm, and I'm fascinated by Melodic Virtue and, and what you have done over the years, and I'm kind of anxious to see you know, what comes up next for you guys. Yeah, much appreciated. I appreciate the time today, Aaron. Good to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye now. The name of the book by Aaron Tanner is The Residence, Sight for Sore Eyes, Volume 2, available on Melodic Virtue. You can buy it at MelodicVirtue.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to share it with everyone you know. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also email me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks to ZNM Home Buyers for their support, and thanks to you for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.